Welcome everyone to IBD Drive Time. I'm Raymond Cross from the University of Maryland School of Medicine, and I am delighted to have Russ Cohen from the University of Chicago here today as our um, guest. Russ, welcome to IBD Drive Time. Well, great. Thanks, Ray, and thanks everybody for making this possible. Looking forward to it. So, Russ, you're you're a master clinician in IBD, and we've had an explosion of new therapies, but over the last four to six weeks, there have been a number of new drugs approved or new formulations of existing drugs approved, which has crowded the landscape even more. Um, I wanted to start with subcutaneous vetalizumab because we've been looking forward to that for some time. Um, can you just summarize for the listeners the studies that led to the approval of the subcutaneous formulation? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we have been waiting and we're very happy. Um, uh, October was a good month for IBD. We had four approvals <laughs> for ulcerative colitis within relatively right, right around October. So um, as uh, many of you know, vetalizumab has been given IV 300 milligrams um, uh, only. Uh, week 026 was the load and then every eight weeks afterwards Subsequently, there were studies done looking at a subcutaneous version of vetalizumab. The way the studies worked is that patients received the first two IV doses, and then subsequently at week six um, were switched to the um, subcutaneous dose. And the subcutaneous dose happens to be 108 milligrams for those taking notes, and it's given every two weeks. Uh, so that's how the trials were done, and uh, the patients were either switched or they were kept on the IV, and the and the outcomes um, of either staying on the IV or switching to the subcutaneous were were comparable. Um, you know, one thing I actually was reading up on is interesting is um, people say, well, you know, it's given subcutaneously, but you know, would it be as effective as IV? Well, Ray, in our world, we often look at trough levels for drugs, and um, I looked up the trough levels for after the initial first um, two IV doses, trough levels around 26, but staying on IV, the trough level at the end of 52 weeks was 11 for vetalizumab. But if you went to the subcutaneous after the initial induction, uh, the, the uh, trough levels were 35. So um, this is interesting because um, what we certainly the intent is not for the subcutaneous to be better. <laughs> But it may be better because now we're seeing that you have triple the trough levels, at least from that trial, about you know after they switched over, uh, and which actually may help. You and I use vetalizumab a lot, and you know that there are some patients who can't make it the full eight weeks. They're chugging, and they can get to week four to week six. Well, maybe we won't have that issue and um, and be able to treat them straight through. So I think that um, very very exciting. Yeah, it's a really um, astute observation. And my understanding is the way they formulated the sub-Q or the way they, the PK of the sub-Q formulation is designed to be 300 milligrams IVQ6. So that explains why the levels are better compared to the infusion every eight weeks. So I think for transitioning our patients that are already on six weeks or eight week dosing, it's going to be fairly easy. I guess the question for you and I, what are we going to do with that patient that's on 300 milligrams every four weeks? We either keep them on the four weeks or we switch them to the sub-Q and just cross our fingers and hope that that's, that's enough. What do you think? 
Well, you know, again, if you look at the trough levels, I mean, after um, patients got week zero and week two and the IV studies, their trough was 26. I mean, it wasn't with the maintenance part, um, but, you know, uh, and then given the subcutaneous ones uh, over time, it's about 35. So it may even be possible that, you know, again, we think that the biologics, the trough is important. Um, <laughs> but Elizabeth, sometimes we're not quite sure how the drug may work because it seems that some of the interesting studies suggest that um, it may work through perhaps more through de dendritic cells or others than what we initially thought with this, the true cellular trafficking. Um, but I think that just like many things, we'll, we'll learn with time. Mm -hmm. uh, initially, the easy ones are going to be the people who are on betalizumab IV already. So for example, if you have someone who's been on IV betalizumab and is interested in switching, um, the time that you would switch would be at the, at the time for their next IV dose. Right. So patients will be inquiring. Um, and then at the time of the next IV dose, you would, dose, you'd switch them. And, um, but, you know, sometimes we also wonder, you know, the patients on 300 every four weeks, I mean, are they in remission? I mean, if they have fecal cow that are high or scopes that show inflammation, perhaps not, you probably want to change into a different therapy altogether. One of the things that's a little puzzling, and I, I can't quite understand why it's approved for ulcerative colitis and not for both, and it's something with the delivery device, but um I'm going to offer it to both UC and Crohn's, and if they say no because they have Crohn's and not UC, then I'll just wait a little later until it's approved for Crohn's. I presume you're going to take the same approach to that? Yeah, so as you pointed out, right now in the United States, the FDA approval is only for moderate ulcerative colitis, um, although, as you know, it's been available in subcutaneous form for many years for both UC and Crohn's disease, and there hasn't been much concern about efficacy. I think it's just a matter of the timing. The FDA had the company do whatever studies they did, and, and the first study results were in for UC, and then I believe the Crohn's ones will be in in a few months. And, you know, I'm personally going to just go ahead and do the three-dose intravenous induction. You don't, you're not required to go to sub-Q at week six. You could wait to week 14. So I think for me, assessing their response and whether they're doing well on the drug before going through a hassle of another approval, that's how I'm going to do it. But you could do it either, as Russ said, the way they did it in the clinical trial, or you could wait to some other time point during maintenance to transition. Either would be appropriate. So let's switch to... Um, subcutaneous infliximab, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Zimfentra is, I think, how you pronounce it. So this is the sub-Q biosimilar version of infliximab. Um, Russ, what's the evidence for that, and how do you transition to sub-Q? Great. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, I agree with the vetalizumab. Why didn't they just do a full load, 026, before switching patients to the sub-Q? Well, that's actually what they did with the infliximab trial. So the patients got the three dose of infliximab IV week 0, 2, and 6. So the induction was all IV. And then um, patients were randomized to switch to the um, uh, injectable every two weeks of the infliximab or to stay on the IV. And um, patients did just as well with either. Um, the studies also showed a clear benefit over placebo. What it is is that the dose is 120 milligrams subcutaneously and it's given every two weeks also. So typically um, what would happen is that patients who are already on infliximab and doing well, presumably IV, um, you would start the subcutaneous uh, at the time of their next IV infusion. And again, looking at trough levels, 
um, not surprisingly, the trough levels were very nice with the subcutaneous every two weeks. Um, in the studies, steady state with the injection was by week 22, and the troughs were in ulcerative colitis were 14.6, and in Crohn's was also 14.6. So that's certainly higher than the 7 to 10 range that we're hoping to achieve um, with the IV every Q8. And um, I think, again, it's something for us to consider. You have patients who might be on the IV not making it the full eight weeks. Um, well, maybe if they were getting the dosing every two weeks, they, they would be able to do that. Uh, so that's exciting. You know, it's the one thing that you mentioned, the word biosimilar. Well, so <laughs> it, the IV version is a biosimilar to the brand name Remicade, um, and it's a biosimilar um, that many of us know either um, from Celtrion, um, either as in Flectra in the United States or Remzema and other places too. But since the injectable, no one's had injectable um, infliximab before. This is actually not a biosimilar. This is the originator drug. <laughs> so that's right. So it's exactly. the biosimilar in intravenous form, but in sub Q, it's the reference product. It's which a reference is product the first in our field to further make things more confusing. So right. So right. So the so the manufacturer actually has both the biosimilar and the reference product for, um, and they'll they'll have to find they'll have to fend off their own biosimilars. So the, the beauty of this is that we know what drug levels mean. And so, again, I thought this was the PK was really modeled after the, the five mix per kid Q6. So for those that are on dose on more frequent doses or higher doses than that, um, we have the ability to check levels and make sure we're hitting the sweet spot. And as Russ said, if you're overshooting, then and you go to sub Q, you could potentially drop down and get into the range. So we'll be at least able to know if we're giving the appropriate dose for the sub Q. I had an interesting question that came up in clinic yesterday. I don't know the answer to, and I'm interested to see your thoughts. I have a patient who's been on uh, infliximab for a long time. Uh, prior significant infusion reactions, gets pre-meds, a little bit of post-meds, does some singular for a week before the infusion, is getting home infusions, doing well. And I mentioned this to her because it takes her obviously a bit longer to get the infusion in. It's a little bit more hassle factor. She's tired for a day or two after. So she asked about would she have a reaction with the sub-Q and I said, I don't think you would have a reaction to the sub-Q, but I offered to bring her into the office for the first dose and have her sit for a few hours to just see what happened. What do you think about that, Russ? I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I'm putting you on the spot. No, it's fine. Well, we certainly know that patients who are on brand name, let's say Remicade, if they have infusion-related reactions or make anti-drug antibodies, we typically don't go to the one of the biosimilar infliximabs or vice versa kind of IV, it's kind of game over. But um, for patients who may not have a true um, immune reaction, such as neutralizing antibodies, um, you know, there is a difference giving an infused protein than an injected protein. And um, everything depends on the situation that the patient was in. Um, certainly, um, as long as it's um, not been a severe reaction, um, would be reasonable. I don't expect that you'd see a change um, while they're sitting in your office, but I guess we'll find out. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how to do it, but uh, maybe that'll be the test case, and I'll give you, you and the listeners, some follow up as to how it went. Um, so let's let's transition to um, one of the newly approved therapies. So we have our second S1P receptor modulator for ulcerative colitis, atrasimod. The trade name is Velsipity. I think that's how you say it. 
Russ, you want to summarize um, uh, those studies and then any in, anything in particular you want to point out about them that was different from others? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Itrazomod is the second. S1P, as you mentioned, Rosatomod is the first. They're both FDA approved for ulcerative colitis. They are not approved yet for Crohn's disease. They're oral therapies. It's very attractive. They're once a day dosed. Um, in the um, the newer medicine, the atrazomod studies, uh, they're, they're called the Elevate studies. I guess it's good to be good to be um, optimistic. They're the Elevate fifty two fifty two weeks. They it was basically an induction and uh, maintenance study altogether. And then the second Elevate twelve was just an induction for twelve weeks. Also, um, once a day, patients are randomized two to one to the drug. It's a two milligram dose or placebo. And they actually stratified the randomization based on which they had previous biologics or JAK inhibitors, steroids, and disease activity. And you know the results actually from the inductions for both were actually very promising. Um, for the, the year-long study, the initial 12-week induction, the remission rates at 12 weeks were about a quarter, 27% of the patients who um, got the drug versus 7% who got placebo. So that's a 20% difference in remission at by, by 12 weeks. And at week 52, it was 32% versus 7% too. So look at the 7%. <laughs> Usually, you know, that didn't budge. So you got about a third of the patients um, a year out. The second induction trial um, had, again, actually um, 25%, about a quarter of the patients, again, by week 12 were in remission. And and I think what's also of interest is um, Marla Dubinsky gave a recent oral presentation at American College of Gastroenterology which showed that some patients began to have uh, symptomatic improvement uh, within the first two days on this therapy, which many of us thought were a little surprising. Often we felt that the S1Ps, because of their mechanism of action, might not be an instant gratification, if you will, with decreasing inflammatory mediators. And But at least for the ulcerative colitis, indications where patients um, had um, decrease in bowel movements and bleeding um, the difference between placebo and drug was by day two, um, which was surprising and, and encouraging. Yeah, I agree. And the, the the reason that they were able to do this compared to Azanamod is because remember, Azanamod has for the listeners, it has the ramped up dosing, the blister pack, whereas this drug, you're starting with the standard dose from the get-go. So you could actually do those early diary cards that reflect the standard dose. So that's a nice advantage. The other thing for the listeners is, as Russ pointed this out, this is a treat straight through trial design. Almost all of our studies, other than Act 1, Act 2 for infliximab and UC, are what we call pick the winner studies, where there's placebo induction, responders are re-randomized to active treatment or placebo. And so the results at maintenance always look better in those studies than they will for a treat straight through design. So when you're looking at the results, you should and interpret it, understanding that there's some trial design differences. So one other cool thing about these studies, Russ, is they included ulcerative proctitis patients, which no one has had the courage to do. And I would have predicted that those patients would have been a little more difficult to treat because of the, some nuisance, urgency, frequency symptoms, but the results look pretty good with the UP population. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting um, that that was the case. As you mentioned, some of those patients have a lot of symptoms and some of the outcomes in our clinical trials obviously are symptom-based. <laughs> so uh, so many of the others haven't been brave enough to do that. Um, uh, you know, I think that it's uh, something that um, perhaps the others haven't done, but doesn't necessarily mean they wouldn't work. 
um, but certainly it helps us expand the patient base. And so um, I'm going to put both of us on the spot here. So we have two S1Ps for UC. Where are you positioning these drugs? How are you going to select uh, one over the other? Obviously, if the payer says one or the other, then it makes things somewhat easy. But so how are you going to position these, Russ? Well, you know, I, I think these these are oral ones today, and there's no there's no requirement for a prior TNF or anything, too. And for ulcerative colitis, I think it's very easy. Your ulcerative colitis patients, most of them are probably already taking a handful of pills anyway. And if they have active disease, then you just say, well, we, you know, we have a therapy. It's one pill a day. Um, when I do my scopes, I actually um, take a picture of the um, the EKG or the the printout. I show that they're not in not not in right bundle blanche block or something too. So as long as there's no cardiac um, issue, we can get to get started. There is a little bit of difference in the labeling um, uh, with the uh, trasma. The newer one does require um, uh, ophthalmologic examination and requires a skin examination either before or shortly after starting. That's not true. Um, with Ozanamod. So the, uh, there is a little difference in, in the regulatory too. As far as um, the other differences, the half-life half for Ozanamod is longer. Um, so is that a good thing? Maybe if patients aren't taking their medicine every day. Is it a bad thing? Well, if you want it to wear off quickly, if it's a side effect, perhaps we'll have, we'll have to see. But I don't think that there's going to be payers that are going to have two S1Ps <laughs> at equal status on their formulary. I presume that they're going to tier them and they're probably going to just go with whatever, whatever the payer um, pays for. Yeah, I agree. And and I gave Russ so many topics. We didn't, we can't touch on efficacy and safety, but there was no new safety signals with the Atrasimod study compared to Ozanimod. My take on it is they seem pretty similar as far as efficacy, depending on the study you look at. Um, for women of childbearing age, I'm going to give them a trasimod because of the short half-life. So if they do become pregnant, we can wash it out quickly. Whether that's sensible or not, I don't know. And then also for the ulcerative proctitis patients who have not responded or responded incompletely to a 5-ASA product, because they did the study in the UP population, I'm going to use a trasimod in that population. So that's how, and the other patients I'll probably do as Xanamod. So maybe everyone will be happy then with that approach. All right, let's shift to Mirakizumab, Russ. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Omva, I think is the, the uh, trade name for this. So approved for UC. Um, what's the evidence for this and how does it compare to the other drug in the class used to Kinumab? Of course, this is a P19, not a anti-P40 inhibitor. Right. So um, this is the first in class for ulcerative colitis. Um, in, in Crohn's disease, many of you know that we already have Rizinkizumab, a brand name Skyrizi on the market, but we do not have that for ulcerative colitis. Mirakizumab is the first. So Mirakizumab is the first IL-23 inhibitor, um, and it's directed towards the P19 subunit. Uh, this is a little different than Ustekinumab or Stelora, um, which is IL-12-23. And I think uh, as um, gastroenterologists, we have to stop lumping them together, uh, even though they both have the word uh, IL-23 in their um, targets. They're different medicines. They're, they're different downstream effects from the receptor uh, stimulation or uh, on the immune system. And I think we really have to consider them as, as separate classes. So this is uh, exciting. Um, we were waiting for this drug. It was delayed, uh, not because of efficacy, but just because of some issues um, with with FDA in the factory, it's now out on the market. Um, just um, like many of the others, um, it's initially given as an IV 
um, week zero, four, and eight. It happens to be 300 milligrams. It takes 30 minutes. And subsequently, the patients are changed then to a subcutaneous injection um, of 200 milligrams starting at week 12 and every four weeks afterwards. So I want to make it clear, though, that uh, it's a little different than the rizinkizumab. There's not an on-body injector. So the 200 milligram subcutaneous are two 100 milligram injections. So after the first three IV doses, it's then starting at week 12, uh, a every four week um, double injection of, of the product. You know, there is very good data in rizinkizumab for Crohn's disease, and now mirakizumab for ulcerative colitis, the safety of these therapies have been um, excellent. Um, Mirakizumab was not on the market previously for psoriasis or psoriac arthritis. Um, so this is the, we're, we're the first ones to get this one. Um, and I think it's a great option um, uh, for patients with moderate serial sort of colitis. Yeah, I think the one other thing to point out is that currently the sub-Q version of mirakizumab has citrate in it, like the old adalimumab, um, pre-filled syringes or pens. So it can be a painful injection. I don't remember significant injection site reactions being a problem in the trial, but you should just make your patients aware of that. And, you know, I was hoping that this would be much better than used to Kenyumab for bioexposed patients, similar to Rizinkizumab in Crohn's. And my interpretation is it's not a whole lot different, um, but we'll see how that plays out in clinical practice, but definitely effective medication and not sure if it's not approved for psoriasis, whether that mechanism would still be preferred in someone with dermatologic issues, but we'll figure that out. Um, before I go to the fun question, I uh, just want to remind the listeners that we are sponsored by the Gastroenterology Learning Network and Advances in IBD. Um, and we are available on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Go to Gastroenterology Learning Network and you'll see IBD Drive Time. So you could subscribe and listen to us for every episode. So Russ, this has been great. The fun question. Tell me and the listeners something about yourself that we may not know. What's the fun fact for Russ Cohen? So believe it or not, about 40 years ago, I broke the record. At, for rib eating in Times Square, New York City. And um, it's the first time in my life I'd eaten ribs. Um, some of you can probably surmise why. <laughs> and uh, when I went back to that restaurant, um, and it closed, so perhaps I put them out of business. I would never in a million years have guessed that you're a champion rib eater. That is a nugget to keep in my brain. All right, Russ, this has been great. Thanks for doing this. Uh, we hope to have you back soon. Great. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.